This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today are Dr. Alfred Sadler and his brother, Mr. Blair Sadler, to discuss their about-to-be-published book, Pluck, Lessons We Learned for Improving Healthcare and the World. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank Good you. Good to be with you, dear. Uh, Dr. and Mr. Uh, Sadler's bios are, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background in Pluck, identical twins Alfred or Fred, a surgeon, and Blair, an attorney, largely recall the remarkable nine-year collaborative effort through 1976 with the U.S. Public Health Service Corps at NIH, at Yale, at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, at the Hastings Center's Center on Bioethics that materially advanced the field of organ donation and transplantation and created the physician assistance profession and today's emergency medical system. So again, briefly on background, I'll leave it at that. So let's begin. Um, sort of the standard question uh, for both gentlemen. Uh, what prompted you to write the book or phrase another way? What do you hope it accomplishes? Well, this is Blair. I, uh, I, I think our goal is to inspire and motivate people to action based on lessons learned from our own lived experience that we think are timely and relevant today. Okay, thank you. Uh, Fred, do you want to add to that? Yeah, and just I would completely agree with that, that we uh, went into this collaborative work together uh, as a medical legal team and in each of the areas that you alluded to, we were rookies when we started out, uh, David. And so we take the reader through how we uh, basically take Malcolm Gladwell's uh, three parts of the tipping point, became experts and mavens by doing a lot of homework, and then became connectors by learning who else was in the field and how we could connect with them and then once we had something that was worth selling, if you will, like a model transplant law, that we could uh, get in touch with those who could help get it uh, enacted. And we feel that there are comparable issues today, uh, whether it has to do with climate change or with the pandemic that we're dealing with or other uh, public health issues, or in all all four of those issues, bringing them up to date. There's been great success in the four issues that you mentioned, but there's also now a new set of problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We think that our lessons that can that we used can still be very applicable to uh, solving these problems, uh, obviously uniquely changed as the problem changes, but and also recognizing that uh, 2022 is a very different uh, period than 55 years ago. There's anti-science and there's uh, polarization in a way that we didn't have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Let me, uh, before I get into um, 
this the substance of this work. Uh, uh, Don Burrock, who writes the um, uh, the intro for the volume, he makes note of this. It is interesting, and I'll ask either of you to explain how did this. And you do explain this, uh, but for the listener, how did this partnership come about? It, it, my reading or interpretation, I think you actually used the word serendipity, but how did uh, you and your brother decide uh, to partner on work after you both completed uh, med and law school? Well, I can listen. Go ahead. Okay, brother, go ahead. This actually started in Philadelphia, David, when we were still, I had just graduated from Penn Law School and was clerking for an appellate judge. And Fred was in his fourth year in medical school, it being a year longer than law school. And he had to do a presentation as part of a rotation at Mass General, as did all of the fourth year medical students. And all the others were on something very scientific or very medical, but he and I, over the years in Philadelphia, would get together and chat about different issues where law and medicine overlapped, where they might get in each other's way, where they might help something or hurt something. And one we had talked about a good bit was the good Samaritan problem of people stopping at a roadside to help someone, you know, like the fable Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. But what were the legal issues? What were the responsibility issues? And so, you know, Fred suggested to the chairman of surgery at Harvard and Mass General, could we do a presentation? Or, you know, his the one-hour presentation with about 60 doctors on that topic. We did. We did a lot of, uh, started out as rookies, as Fred said, and but really got to know what did all the laws say. And we did that joint presentation. And at the end of it, he said, you know, that was one of the best presentations we ever had. And that was sort of the sick, that was the original catalytic effect. And it was, you know, it was serendipity for sure. in that if this just happened to be this opportunity, but we, you know, we, we took, we seized the moment and, we didn't know whether it was going to fall on its face or be, you know, work out well. And then, as we say early in the book, there were four. This was the first of four green lights. Mm-hmm. Another was a meeting with a great law professor that I knew well, who was very encouraging. Another was a former Surgeon General, Luther Terry, who happened to be Vice Chancellor at the University of Pennsylvania, of all places, of the health, and the Dean of the Medical School, which is very encouraging and open doors to NIH and the public health service. And the fourth was a visit down to NIH after we'd been there and we hadn't heard anything, you know? And so part of it is really the sense of it was us initially getting together, sort of scratching our heads saying, this is fun to talk about. Is there a chance to work together? And then by these four partly lucky, but partly we took, really took the initiative, you know, they didn't fall out of the sky. Mm-hmm. And each one of them turned a green light that led to the next green light that led to starting our work together. Okay, thank you. Let, let, me, let me go to uh, the substance here uh, and, and ask this question about these projects. Um, as I noted in the introduction, uh, you collaborated on... on on issues concerning uh, 
uh, uh, tissue and organ donation and transplantation workforce, specifically uh, work at Duke through your time at Yale regarding developing the uh, physician assistant program um, and uh, emergency medical response. Which of these, uh, in your mind, were uh, which one of this these rather was did you find most challenging, and for what reason? I think that would be. Uh, I, I'm very interested to learn, and of course, I'm, I'm assuming uh, you you may not uh, have the same answer. Well, this is Fred. I I think uh, that's a great question, David. I think I would say that they were all equally challenging, if that's mm-hmm. possible, and if and if therefore to say that there was one that was more challenging, just to put this in a little more context from what Blair said. When we talked to Dr. Luther Terry, uh, the former Surgeon General, who was famous for, in 1964, writing the major paper, Smoking is Hazardous mm-hmm. to Your Health, where he took on the side effects of cigarettes, um, he welcomed us to his office when I just made a cold call and said, could we talk to you about some ideas? And he said, I love this idea of a doctor and a lawyer collaborating. He'd written a paper of about with about ten subjects to cover, like the use of human beings in research and uh, the uh, definition of death and genetic engineering and the like. He said we should have had a lawyer in the public health service a lot more. Call these various people and tell them that Dr. Terry sent. So the way we got to the NIH and to be in the public health service, which was at the height of the Vietnam War, we each would have gone into the military. Um, otherwise, uh, was that uh, Dr. Terry set this up for us. And this really, uh, we think about it 50 years later, and we're now 81 years old, uh, that, uh, and this is where we came up with what I think pluck, pluck signifies, which is that we took, and Blair kind of alluded to this, we took the initiative, but then there was just a lot of luck. There was a lot of luck that Dr. Terry happened to be at the University of Pennsylvania rather than one of the other 110 medical schools. If that hadn't happened, this wouldn't have happened kind of thing. So we get, we get to the NIH on July 1st of 67, and we're fortunate enough to be in the director's office, but uh, we had no idea what to expect, and we're just very, very uh, fortunate that the head of program planning, a man named Joseph Murtaugh, was uh, an outstanding intellect and a great human being. And he handed us this problem of uh, obtaining pituitary glands, of all things, from cadavers uh, that the NIH was doing at, at great scale to grind up pituitary glands for human growth hormone research because it couldn't be synthesized back then. Uh, and this is for studying hypopituitary dwarfs. Uh, and they got into some legal problems, and they said, Sadlers, look into this, solve this you know, problem. What are we doing wrong? So that's when we first uh, jumped into the Georgetown Law Library and uh, learned all about the laws relating to dead bodies. So I think the, the very first... Um, uh, question that we had to deal with was probably the the scariest, but uh, then we had this great serendipity, and this is where the, the luck part of pluck comes in, and another way, in that five months and three days later, this in December of 67, 
Dr. Christian Bernard did the first human heart transplant in Budashur Hospital in South Africa. So where this little niche area of obtaining pituitary glands um, was no longer a niche area. It was front page news of every newspaper and every six o'clock news. Uh, how is Dr. Bernard's patient doing from his heart transplant? He lived 18 days and then the, the rest is history. And then we got very involved in writing the model law for organ donation. One thing led to another. So then when we got asked to do the next thing, which was look into these new uh, non-physician health professionals, namely physician assistants and nurse practitioners um, who were being trained at Duke, Colorado, and Seattle to deal with this acute medical uh, workforce shortage that was created because of the adoption of Medicare and Medicaid in 1966, which freed up a lot of um, access for the elderly and for the poor would it be possible to have not only increasing more doctors and starting the, the field of family practice, but uh, these brilliant doctors at these institutions realized that a lot of what a doctor does could be done by someone else as long as they were properly trained. Mm-hmm. And there were all these military corpsmen coming out of Vietnam, previously Korea, who had been trained by physicians and had been battle-hardened, um, and they were the natural entrance into this whole new profession. So that was, in, in many ways, fun and easygoing, and then we had to come up with a proper way to uh, get them credentialed, uh, which was uh, one step following another. Um, then on to Yale to um, deal with emergency medicine, and that was, again, a, a pluck issue where I I had a role at NIH involved with uh, studies of arthritis and metabolic diseases and was making a site visit to Yale where my former chief of surgery at Drexel that I admired so much, Jack Cole, um, had moved from Philadelphia to New Haven. And he had this big grant from the Commonwealth Fund of New York to study emergency medical services because outside of the hospital, the uh, EMS uh, was essentially a wasteland. There was no 911. There were no ambulances that were worth anything other than station wagons. There were no trained EMTs or paramedics. There was no system. There was no organization of EMS. So we were asked, uh, based on this grant that Dr. Cole had gotten, would you guys like to come up to Yale and... um, run this, what he called the Yale trauma program. And we said, yes, we certainly would. And we also like to start our own physician assistant program because we were so impressed with the models that we saw. And so we did both of those and each of those were, uh, a little, uh, I guess a little scary, but by that point we'd been used to being rookies. We didn't know anything about EMS. So we rolled up our sleeves and did this big state wide study. And uh, we got one of the graduates from the Duke program to help out and uh, draft a c- curriculum for our first five PA students in 1971. Um, so we learned how to ask for help by that point. We learned the lessons that um, are in Gladwell's book, you know, study, learn, 
connect, ask for help, cooperate, collaborate, and um, share your results with others. And then finally, the opportunity to go to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which was overnight the largest foundation in health, mm-hmm. where we were able to take our, and that was based in Princeton, where we were able to uh, take the Connecticut uh, experience of setting up regional healthcare systems for EMS uh, and translate those into 44 regional systems nationally. And be very involved with that as well as uh, training more primary care doctors and supporting PAs. So that's, uh, I would say, um, Blair, chime in and see if you had a different experience. That's a very good history. I think in terms of your specific question, David, all of them, I agree, they were equally challenging. They were just extremely different, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, one, the transplant one, there are these two headline articles that lawsuits have been brought in, brought by families because they felt their deceased body had been invaded and parts of their body had been stolen. And so NIH is validly concerned like well but they're grantees of nih what the hell should we be doing and that led us into this odyssey of discovering the commissioners on uniform state laws this was part of doing our homework and then becoming consultants to them because they knew we were here's the lucky part we were in the catbird seat by then we knew the national kidney foundation the heart association you know we knew the medical people and they had a structure of drafting, it was over 100 years old, of drafting a model law, vetting it, and then getting it out to places. But each state had to pass it. And then, as Fred mentioned, we had the serendipity that Christian Bernard uh, did this uh, groundbreaking front-page news heart transplant. And so, suddenly it was not something that was interested to a few people or an NIH grantee, but it was interested to the the man and woman on the street. So the challenge was how to dissect all the issues that were swirling around into a simple, universal organ donor instrument, (laughs) namely the organ donor card, that all of those organizations would use. They could put their own logo on it, but it would have the exact same words and that the model law would specifically say that was a valid legal document. And it would also say a family can give permission, but who's the family and in what order? We also wrestled with issues like the conflict of interest between the donor's position and the recipient's position. Or should we define brain death, which had now become common but was debated and decided no that's not something you should put in the law because that's going to change every single one of those 13 provisions in the law had been debated to whether to include or not include and the reason it got enacted in all 50 states plus the dc in three years was it was clear it was understandable it did not take on, it was voluntary. It was a voluntary donation. 
it was based on American core values of altruism. We, there was a big debate. Some people wanted to have presumed consent, just presume you'd already uh, consented. And we thought that would be a disaster. Unfortunately, we were able to win that debate. And so every state passed it. Because if there was someone who had a religious objection, they, well, they're not an organ donor. There was no pressure on them. You know, mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the emergency care issue, what was fascinating to take it to 30,000 feet, here are all these courageous military medics that were saving lives every day on the battlefield. They come back to the U.S. and they want to work in health care. And because they weren't a graduate of a medical school or a nursing school, the only job they could get was be an orderly at that level, or they go into some, you know, selling encyclopedias. What a loss, you know? And we discovered these early pioneers that Fred mentioned that were saying, we're not going to take that. We at Duke, we're at Colorado with pediatric nurse practitioners. We in Seattle with MedEx programs called differently. We're going to do something about that. And so we got a chance where we were lucky because we're at NIH and we had a mandate from the secretary of what's now HHS to go figure out how to do this. We got to meet all those folks and they were extraordinarily generous. Talked to two other people and unlike writing a model law that would take three years to do and have to pass in every state, Gene Stead, who directed the Duke problem, said, hey, guys, I've got five graduates coming out in four months. Got to have a place to practice. And we couldn't find out a new licensure law. So sometimes one of our lessons is the best answer to a complex problem is a simple one. So we simply, with two other experts, wrote a one-paragraph amendment to the existing state medical practice acts it simply allowed a physician assistant to practice under supervision to do A, B, C, D, E, you know? <laughs> that moved forward. So in each of these cases, they had very different challenges, but they also had very different opportunities. And part of it was to have uh, eyes wide open and ears wide open and listening to people Look, learning from people and connecting people, as Fred said earlier, together uh, to find collaborative common solutions and then learn as we go and, you know, and and admit our successes and failures and say, whoops, well, that one didn't work. <laughs> so that's why we think some of these lessons that we learned way back then are really relevant to complex problems today. Thank you. Just to add some specifics. So thank you both. So the specific is the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act that was, uh, as you note in the book, had been adopted by all 50 states by 1971. Uh, The uh, PA program at Duke uh, had been established by 1973 as a uh, profession that had been adopted by most states by that year. And then relative to um, Mercy Medical Ambulance Services, you started at Yale in Connecticut. You produced this document, Emergency Medical Services in Connecticut, a Blueprint for Change. 
and uh, that evolved to uh, subsequent work at uh, Robert Wood Johnson uh, to a more, uh, your additional work was a more comprehensive national EMS system uh, that you developed through working with um, at RWJF. So uh, thank you again. Let's let's go to um, the so the, the latter portion of the book, uh, two uh, chapters specifically, and let's start with chapter nine. So you identify um, because these issues or concerns persist. I mean, you'd made marked progress in addressing each of these, but uh, these issues persist. So in chapter nine, you have progress and challenges. So for each of these four. You have a, a section, for example, organ and transplant, trans, organ and tissue rather transplantation. You have paragraphs on progress, then you follow with paragraphs on challenges. So we'd like to discuss a few of those. So let's uh, let's do so. I'll ask again either of you to pick, uh, say each, uh, pick one of these, and particularly I'd be curious to know what's your understanding. What do you see relative to these issues um, um, today, or the challenges thereof? Uh, today. So, Blair, well, let's well just I, I was going to say, talk about the progress a little bit, Blair, and then you could talk about the uh, challenges of today. How does that sound? I'd like to focus on one. As you said, David, I'd like to focus on one, organ transplantation, if we could. All right, Blair, do you want to take that and run with it? Yeah. So, you know, we've made all this major progress in, in preserving organs, organ rejection, uh, scientific centers, just phenomenal stuff. And, and the, the bottom line is we save 40,000 lives a year through transplantation. The great majority are kidneys, but 40,000 lives a year. That's a big deal. But the bad news is we lose 8,000 people a year, year in, year out, who are on waiting lists that never get a transplant. That's 17 to 22 people a day. When you then step into what's going on and what's the problem, the organ procurement system is in trouble. It's got wonderful heroes every day that are making these miracles happen. But as has been widely published in the New York Times and the Washington Post and others, there is a five-fold variation in quality in the, between the 50 for organ procurement organizations throughout the country. But mainly, you have a five-time better chance if you're in one part of the country, one zip code, of having an organ, receiving an organ if you're on a waiting list, than you do in somewhere else. That has been a problem that's been around for a long time. That is simply unacceptable. I can tell you has been a CEO, president of Children's Hospital here in San Diego, for 26 years. That's the kind of variety of quality in healthcare that simply wouldn't be tolerated. Absolutely. Absolutely. Organ procurement organizations not only procure organs, which they do using the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, which is still in place in every state, but they also procure a tremendous amount of tissue for medical research, all the way from bone but the entire facial tissue, they often do that without following the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act in their state. Uh, they do not get permission, and then it is sold for profit to other for-profit organizations. 
This has been written about, and there are now congressional hearings on this. And our worry, we're transplantation, but we're pretty good observers of what's going on. And our worry is this is going to blow up one of these days, uh, and it could erode trust in the entire organ system. Red, red alert here on this one, David, is there needs to be more transparency and trust from the leaders of some of these OPOs who are very risk resistant to change to disclose, as they have been subpoenaed by Congress, to what percentage of their revenue is from a for-profit source. Do they, in fact, get permission to procure tissue? And if so... You know what do they have to hide? But we're, we're we're just very we're not being accusatory. We're simply I'm simply sharing with you and your listeners today something that's been widely reported and described. And we hope that that people leaders step forward and clear the air and make the improvements so that these miracles that happen every day will continue to happen and waiting lists can go down to zero. So that would be probably my number one. Okay, Blair, thank so, you. Fred, uh, uh, okay, for me to jump in, David. Please, on a, yes, please go one? ahead. Please go ahead, Fred. So this, this, yeah, so this is Fred. So on the bioethics area, which we didn't talk about as, as much please. as the other three, um, but we got very involved in uh, with through serendipity through one of our NIH colleagues, who was getting involved in the establishment of the Hastings Center on Bioethics in 1969, and we were two of the founding fellows. And clearly the work, as Blair described it earlier, in thinking through how should we base an organ donation statute, what should be the values, we had been dealing with uh, uh, fundamental ethical issues of the rights of the individual versus the right of the state. Uh, And so we uh, worked very carefully with that. Uh, a big issue at the time was uh, that uh, people volunteered for research uh, for research experiments and got sometimes paid for it. Uh, were their rights being protected or not? Um, and so uh, a landmark article in 1966 exposed the fact that there were a number of research uh, activities supported by the NIH and the CDC and others that um, there was some question, and the most famous of these was the Tuskegee, Tuskegee right. experiment, uh, uh, which got exposed in 1972. So without going into all the details of that, it, it was very clear that uh, we needed to tighten up the ethical dimensions of science. Over what's uh, been phenomenal over the last 50-some years, as it has with all four of these areas, um, is that there are now bioethical institutes in every medical institute, medical school where they had been in none in 1969. And uh, the Hastings Center decided to stay independent, by the way, and work with um, the various uh, educational institutions, whether they be medical schools, law schools, uh, graduate schools in philosophy, or undergraduate schools, for that matter. And so Hastings Center has now become the world leader in ethics. What is going on today in bioethics, 
uh, every single day. It's very much analogous to the Christian Bernard story. Every single day we're talking about ethical issues relating to vaccinations and wearing masks and what kind of uh, restrictions there need to be in schools. Uh, how much uh, is this an independent uh, individual right issue versus our commitment to our brethren in the community? And so that is being debated daily. And I think it's another example of where um, the uh, bioethics are everywhere. How much of our vaccines should we be giving to other countries is another variation on that. So bioethics has gone from a niche area to uh, a daily issue in every U.S. citizen's life, whether they realize it or not. You know, I appreciate your your focusing or adding some uh, um, discussion on Hastings. In fact, just <laughs> coincidentally, I had a back and forth with Hastings Susan Gilbert today. Uh, but you're right on the, the this is the vaccine apartheid issue uh, currently related to uh, COVID, uh, and the issues go on. Um, uh, least of which, of course, um, talk about uh, climate change or the climate crisis or ethical relations related. But we have time for, I do want to cover for, with the time remaining, the, the book largely concludes, there is an epilogue, but the book largely concludes with 15 Lessons for Catalyzing Change. That's Chapter 10's title. Again, I'm going to ask the same format. Uh, if you could both uh, select one or two of these 15, uh, just to note the, the first, uh, begin where you are, grow from beginning to expert. And then, of course, you cite, and I'll just make note, you cite Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point. We cite, again, there are connectors, mavens, and salespersons. I also mentioned, I thought interesting, Ralph Stacy, Diffusion of Innovation, uh, his landmark text. Right. But uh, let's, that aside, again, if, if you could both offer uh, one or two um, of these uh, lessons learned uh, for our audience. So, Fred, uh, I'll jump in. Uh, as we lead off the chapter 10 on the 15 lessons, we have a quote on every chapter. And the quote in this case is from John, Congressman John, John Lewis, Lewis, yes, which is, uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with, but I think it's worth restating. When you see something that is not right, you must say something. You must do something. Democracy is not a state. It is an act. And each generation must do its part to help build what we call the beloved community, a nation and world society at peace with itself. So the 15 uh, specific recommendations relate to collaboration, um, partnership, communication with others, asking for help, uh, taking the road less traveled, knocking on the door of opportunity. It's not going to knock on your door. Um, and maybe I'll stop with those and let Blair take over. Yeah, to answer your question directly, I, it's hard to have favorites it's like your favorite children, David. But <laughs> I think two that resonate with a lot of people, and one of my favorites is lead from any chair. Lead from any chair. Because having been in, you know, sort of formal leadership positions for quite a while, I'll often have my various students I teach to say, well, I'm not going to be able to do anything until I'm a vice president of something or a director of something. Not true at all. You don't have, you can be a rookie 
You can be 25 years old. You can be 18 years old, like Amanda Gorman. Uh, and if ever you're working on in any one of these big issues, including those outside of healthcare about diversity and equity and inclusion, you can be a leader. If you find your voice, you develop your voice. So leading from any chair is a big one for me because it's very inclusive and it's very invitational. Uh, I guess the other two that are sort of the dead heat are the ones we end with, which is, you know, taking a road less traveled and not feeling you have to stay in your lane and work in something that you have been trained at or know really well. You can try something very different. And we, you know, one example is Don Berwick, who took a different direction in the medical field at age 30 to get into quality improvement and went to Japan for six months to learn damming and Duran and how they did things. Uh, the other that I really like is, is dwelling possibility, having a possibility. It's very easy to be discouraged as we all are about the end shooting and killing him. Did we lose Blair? Uh, Fred, are you still with me? I'm still with you. We seem to have. Um, so I think his his the art of possibility is one of our mindsets. It comes from the Emily Dickinson poem, and it is staying optimistic, looking for places where we can accomplish something, and that uh, is particularly challenging when uh, we have a lot of negativity out there to deal with. Yes. So I, I think if I were, could finish Blair's, Blair's sentence, that's how I would have finished it. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, well, uh, uh, Fred and Blair, uh, assuming you're still with us, uh, we're at our time. Um, okay. So I do want to say uh, to both, uh, thank you for this overview. Very much appreciative. I wish you every success with the book. Uh, so again, um, we appreciate your comments on it. Stay well. Thank you so much for including us. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, we're going to be learning more from many of your other uh, fascinating podcasts. Uh, being in Washington and NIH, uh, I bet that never gets out of your blood. Uh, even And you know that well. That's why you're still there. <laughs> okay. Thank you again. Stay well. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.